Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to Deep Dish Radio. I'm Tim Powers. My guest today is author and historian Cliff Nesterhoff. His new book, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, is exactly that. Uh, Cliff traces the history of American comedy from the early days of vaudeville right up until uh, my neighbor and fellow podcaster and man much more famous than I, Mr. Mark Marin, uh, uh, along the way. You learn about the careers of great comedians that maybe you've heard of or your parents are a fan of or your grandparents were a fan of, whatever. Uh, But if you love comedy, and and I do, of course, uh, as a comedian and a a contributor to the culture, I absolutely adore this book. The book is brand new, and it's available from Grove Atlantic Press. It is available wherever books are sold. There is a digital version available right now. But, like I always tell you, march into your... Uh, local brick and mortar bookstore and demand a copy of this book cliff nesteroff and cliff's first name is spelled k-l-i-p-h the book is called the comedians drunks thieves scoundrels and the history of american comedy and cliff tells us some stories about exactly that before we get started with Cliff, if you like what you're hearing, I want you to tell your friends. Uh, get on your Facebook, get on your Twitter feed, and let them know about Deep Dish Radio. We would very much appreciate your support. Uh, the show is free, it doesn't cost you a nickel, and the entertainment value is exactly what you paid for. So <laughs> if, if you like what you hear, if you like the guests, it makes it easier for me to put out episodes if I know that people are listening, and it makes me, uh, it, it allows me to attract uh, more guests if I have an audience. So if you will tell your friends, I would be very, very grateful. You can reach us at ddr at email.com. You can, of course, uh, visit us at our website, deepdishradio.com, or you can follow our Twitter feed, which is at deepdishradio. We look forward to having uh, having some mail that we can read. If you like what you hear, I'd love to read your mail and your comments right here on the show. So Cliff Nesteroff joins me right after this. It's Deep Dish Podcast. Subscribe today and tell a friend about Deep Dish Podcast with Tim Powers. With Tim Powers. So 
I told you before we we started rolling that uh, that I was digging this book, and I, I I dug it from the time that I learned of the concept, <laughs> uh, because the history of stand up comedy is kind of sorely lacking uh, in terms of its accessibility. You don't learn a lot about uh, where we all came from and and how the art form started, and. You know, I live in Hollywood. In fact, just the other day, I was uh, at a, a record swap at the Capitol Records building, and I walked right over Frank Fay's star, right? Oh, yeah, sure. And I thought, well, now, that would have just been just another name to me if I hadn't if I hadn't read this book. I mean, and I thought, you know, I, I thought I knew my stuff because I am a big fan of W.C. Fields and, and Milton Berle and, and guys like that whose, whose films are readily accessible. But these old vaudeville guys are really interesting. So um, I, I suppose let's start with uh, what prompted you to assemble the the history of uh, of comedy as we as we uh, as we have it now. Uh, I was quite uh, uh, accidental for the most part. Really, it wasn't really my choice. I was uh, offered uh, a book deal and uh, uh, a nice wheelbarrow full full of uh, cash money. Right. And uh, and so I wrote it. Uh, I had originally uh, pitched the idea of a book about comedians and the mafia because uh, I was thinking strategically of what sells. So I was living in Canada a few years ago, and there the only type of book that sells is anything to do with hockey. So I don't even like hockey, but when I was living in Canada, I was like, well, I'm going to write a book about hockey, and then I will make money. Um, That uh, kind of was an aborted idea. I did do something up there, but... It fell apart. Um, and this book, I was thinking strategically to write a book about comedians and the mafia because mob stuff is always marketable. Uh, you know, from the 30s to the present day, there has not been a time period where we haven't had at least one mob-related film or TV show or radio show that has been, you know, a huge pop culture sensation. So going back to the 30s, you had Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson in movies like uh, Little Caesar and... Uh, Public Enemy, and right. then in the 50s, you had The Untouchables. Late 60s, early 70s, you have the Mario Puzo books and the Godfather movies. Then Scorsese comes in in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Then The Sopranos come in in the 90s and the zeros. Then Boardwalk Empire comes in in the zeros to today. So I thought Comedians of the Mafia would be a marketable thing because if you were a stand-up comic in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, nine times out of ten, your boss was a mobster because they owned all the nightclubs that people performed in. So, and that's because about... that's because out of prohibition, the the speakeasies were empty and they had the space and they had to fill it with something. Is that kind of a simplistic way of of of, of explaining it? Yeah, basically, they were running the speakeasies when prohibition ended. Uh, booze was no longer illegal; you could get it anywhere, and the mob was left with all these clubs and all these accoutrements for serving liquor. So they transformed them into legitimate nightclubs. So all the guys that were running the speakeasies and running liquor, these mobsters, now they were suddenly, quote-unquote, legitimate businessmen. So uh, as vaudeville folded, stand-up comics went in two directions. They went north in upstate New York and eastern Pennsylvania and western New Jersey if, uh, if they were in that part of the world, and they did the Catskill Resorts. That's when the Catskills really kind of boomed. It was... Uh, after vaudeville collapsed, right. or they started performing in nightclubs around America, wherever there had been speakeasies, which was everywhere. Chicago, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Miami Beach, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, 
everywhere. Right. Uh, so yeah, so it was the mob was in control. So, and these clubs did not strictly showcase comedians. They had dance teams. They had marimba players. They had acrobats. They had, uh, uh, you know, uh, orchestras, singers, and they also had comedians. All those people were employed by the mob, whether they wanted to or not. So even if you made some sort of conscious moral decision not to associate with the mob, uh, which you could, you just, that meant you wouldn't be working in nightclubs at all. And for a stand-up comic, that's the only place you could really work was a nightclub. So because of that, most of the time through those several decades, if you're doing stand-up, you were working for uh, the mafia or some other kind of mob uh, uh, fact. It was the book that I wanted to write because I had... Uh, encountered many old timers who would tell me these fascinating, compelling and harrowing stories. And I think it's interesting to most people. Here is a person whose vocation is ridicule. And yet, if you make fun of the wrong person, you might end up uh, dead or with a broken limb, God knows what. So I found that very compelling. And I know a lot of people already know about the Frank Sinatra sort of mob connection. That always has a, uh, uh, an allure and romanticism around it, even for young people. Uh, but not as many people, if anybody, knows that the same was true of comedians. Frank Sinatra was in touch with mobsters because he was singing in nightclubs. So same as the comics, his bosses were the mob. Um, but I found it more interesting than to be just a, uh, a serious-type singer working for the mob. But a guy who makes fun of things for a living to be working for the mob I found uh, altogether fascinating. So that is the book that I had uh, pitched, but uh, Grove Press, which is a legendary, legendary, subversive uh, uh, publishing house uh, in the state public Naked Lunch, uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, uh, Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller. These were all banned books in America in the early 60s, and right. Grove fought to get them uh, published and really overturned a lot of uh, uh, obscenity laws. So they're a very legendary, important uh, publishing house, and I'm delighted to be uh, with them. And when Grove Press came to me, they said, we like the mob stuff, we like the comedians and the mafia thing, but would you be interested in writing a bigger book that goes back uh, uh, earlier to the days of vaudeville and comes more current to the days of podcast? And so my agent uh, returned to me with that uh, suggestion from them, and he said, uh, I know that's not the book you, you intended on writing, but would you be interested in doing that? <laughs> and I said, well, if I don't do that, then somebody else will, and I'll read that book, and I'll fucking hate it. So, uh, sure, I'll do it. Why not? Plus, they're going to pay uh, so you. Is, so. Yeah, uh, and plus they were going to pay me uh, more money and to give me a, uh, a longer amount of time to do it. And, uh, yeah, so, so I did write it. My big concern and worry when I took on the project was could I possibly make vaudeville interesting and could I possibly make it tangible to a contemporary audience and especially uh, younger people because uh, despite what I write about, I'm younger than everybody thinks, so I want to make sure I'm appealing to my age group, uh, most importantly. I'm 35, so anybody between the age of 18 and 35, I want to make sure uh, I can get, you know, as I want to appeal to them and grab their attention. Now, that's not very easy to do when you're talking about vaudeville, because especially the comedy, it doesn't translate at all, you know, it doesn't seem funny to us uh, today. So I had to really kind of struggle to find a way to make it interesting and hold people's attention and i think i succeeded in that uh, regard but it was uh, that was my main uh, 
uh, worry when I first took the project on, but uh, I think I figured out a way. Sure, I'm I'm about ten years older than uh, than those folks in that in that demographic that you uh, and ten years older than you. So I was interested, but I, you know I'm a comic and uh, really appreciate my history. So it's you know I've been interested in learning about Morin and Mac or you know any of these the, the comedians that I saw in like Columbia Two Reelers that sure. had had vaudeville uh you know uh had a vaudeville history so you know and there are great stories about the mob and the early comics i don't want to give them away because the book needs to be read but uh the story about joey ross the um you know stories that Jack... yeah well well Go. the story about joey ross is a famous story so we're not going to give too much away it's a new story for a younger uh crowd right but they did write a whole book about uh joey lewis uh, uh um did we say joey ross or joey lewis jo- uh, there are so many <laughs> jackie leonard joey so ross joey named joey yeah well, i had this problem yesterday with somebody I was, he was telling me how he loved the uh, joey ross story but he was referring to joey lewis but it's easy to get confused i think i am thinking about were, i'm thinking about joey lewis too the uh the um not the car joey 54 lewis, guy yeah yeah jo- joey lewis is the famous uh comedian mob story and in the 50s uh this guy art cohen c-o-h-n uh who died in a plane crash with uh, uh, uh um, elizabeth taylor's husband he wrote a autobiography of Joey Lewis called The Joker's Wild, and it's sort of like a classic of uh, pulp fiction. It's kind of rare now. You might right. be able to find it in the uh, public library. But it uh, it describes in sort of detail how in the late 1920s, Joey Lewis was uh, booked at a nightclub in Chicago, and it was called The, the Green Mill. And he had been there for several months. He wasn't getting paid that well, and he got... Uh, an offer to perform at a competing club nearby, and he accepted it without asking his bosses if it was okay. But his bosses were guys that worked for Al Capone. So this was a big no-no, and Joey Lewis didn't realize that. And when they told him that, no, you can't just leave and go work at another club without our permission, he told them to go fuck themselves. He goes, you don't own me. Uh, so Joey Lewis was very naive. He didn't realize that they did own own him. You know, right. This was the mafia. Uh, so he had his throat slit open and his vocal cords severed with a hunting shear and uh, almost bled to death. But a maid in the rooming house where he was staying uh, saw this uh, pool of blood flowing from under his uh, his room uh, from the door down the hallway and went and got help. And, and he was saved uh, just in time. Uh, now, they turned this into a book by Arcone. They also turned it into a movie that was made by Paramount and it stars Frank Sinatra. Ironically, Joey Lewis. For for some reason, it's kind of a rare uh, a film. I don't think it's on uh, DVD or VHS, but uh, it is a it is the life story of comedian Joey Lewis. Now he, the reason it's a good story is not just because of that dramatic moment, but he managed to survive, uh, relearn the ability to speak, and then was able to return to nightclubs and do stand up comedy. Mostly did song parodies, actually, but he was considered a comedian, and he worked right into the early 70s. He played every major nightclub in America, from Ciro's in uh, Los Angeles to the Copacabana in New York. He was regulars at both of those clubs, uh, played them every single year, and every other imaginable club in uh, in America, the Chaparie in Chicago, some of the major hotels in Miami Beach. 
Um, so it's a great uh, it's a great story, and I do talk about it in my book. It's one of the first mob stories in my book, kind of laying down uh, uh, the template for the right. culture at that time and the perils that it could involve. But the Joey Lewis story, as far as those uh, stories could be considered famous, uh, that one is the most famous, although there's very few people under the age of 60 uh, today that I think are uh, familiar with it. Right. He's one of those guys in, in Mad, Mad, Mad World where you, you watch it and go, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> or one of those guys who shows up in in those cartoons with, with uh, 40, 30s, 40s era uh, celebrity caricatures. Oh, right, yeah. And you're like, who the yeah, hell is that think, guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was not a uh, good-looking man. No, not at all. A, uh, he, he had a, a, a kind of a, a bad uh, look to him to begin with, but then once he had his throat slot, he had this uh, uh, fleshy scar that uh, went across his neck and all the way up to his ear, and it was with him for life. And when he first uh, got back into performing in the mid-30s, I guess, 1934, 35, he was getting back up on stage. The audiences, you know, they all knew the story. It was still fresh in their minds. Right. And the fact that he was returning was a was a new story as well. So he'd go up on stage and people were fixated on that scar. It was just very prominent, this white flesh that was kind of like a, looked like a like like a thing of fat you would trim off of a roast beef. You know? It was kind <laughs> of a, a disgusting and very distracting. And his first several gigs, he did not do well because he was still learning to speak. So his voice was very coarse. And even throughout the years, he had this gravel in his throat because of this, uh, uh, but especially in the 30s. And he was under contract to 20th Century Fox, so there's some uh, sort of obscure Jane Withers musical comedies that you can find where Joey Lewis plays like a comic relief sailor. Um, but even then, his voice is still very, very uh, uh, coarse. But yeah, the Joe E. Lewis story of his uh, throat right. being split by the Al Capone uh, uh, people is, uh, is a very fascinating one. And it was kind of a warning to all other comedians on the circuit that you don't fuck with us. Um, if you dare defy us, you don't know what might happen. And, and because of that, very few comedians would ever uh, 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 defy mob orders. And because of that, a lot of comedians found themselves uh, getting stiffed on pay getting stiffed on a lot of things because there was no recourse. There was no uh, right. grievance method in which they could uh, seek help or, or object. There was no union strong enough that was going to take on the mob, and actually most of the performers' unions, like uh, AGVA, A-G-V-A, uh, which was the main uh, live performers' union in that day and age, was a mob-run union. So it was uh, if you knew it was good for you as a comedian in those days, you kept your mouth shut, you kept your ears shut, you kept your eyes shut, you went up on stage, you didn't make fun of the, the wrong people, and you just did your job. Yep. It's, uh, it's such an interesting dichotomy, the comedians of that era, up before, me, let's say, let's say the, the mid-50s, um, where, you know, guys from, from Frank, Frank Fay to Jack Benny to Phil Foster, whatever, um, you know, they're doing mother-in-law jokes and a lot of them aren't writing their own material. And it's a very different world than what people think of with comedians today. Now there's this, uh, this perception that we're writing our own material and we are, um, but a lot of us are just tortured, hideous, horrible souls who just, who bear our truth on stage. And these guys really were just kind of in it for the laughs and the chicks. That's kind of, that's the impression that I got. They didn't write their own material. Uh, a lot of the material was was stolen, and they didn't have to write new material because 
there, it wasn't as accessible to everyone as, uh, as it is now. You could do the same 15, 20 minutes, um, you know, for years, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's very true. I mean, you, uh, if somebody stole your act in Chicago and you were a comedian from New York, you only ever really heard about it through the grapevine because it wasn't like going on TV and doing a, a joke on the Tonight Show, or, uh, you know, or somebody filming you with a cell phone and, and putting it up on YouTube. You'd be discovered fairly quickly. So it was true. You could tour with the same 15-minute act, and a lot of uh, guys did that. There was a silent uh, film comedian named Harry Langdon, uh, who's sometimes considered the fourth silent comedy star after Chaplin, Keaton, and Lloyd. Right. And he uh, was in vaudeville, and for 20 years he did the exact same routine. It had something to do with uh, uh, jacking up a car and changing a tire. And uh, he did the exact same act every single time for 20 years, which makes me wonder, you know, was this guy really talented at all? Some people uh, uh, hold his silent films in high regard, but he only ever really made three, although he did later do some of those two-reeler uh, uh, Columbia shorts that you referenced earlier. Right. Uh, but those aren't very good either. And he did, but, a, he did an uh, Oliver Hardy but, film, too. He was filmed up with uh, Oliver Hardy and Zenobia. Zenobia, yeah. Well, doesn't that just have one of them? Just has Oliver, not has, uh, yeah. It has, yeah. It doesn't have Stan. He's he's sitting in for Stan Laurel. It was shot during a contract dispute, and they're like, "Well, we oh, need yeah. a we need a silent, funny looking, pasty face guy. Let's get Langdon in here." And it, you know, it's it's like driving a car with that, three wheels. I've seen that movie. Yeah, it's almost it's it's got so few laughs. It feels like a drama. <laughs> you're, you're pretty accurate. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you're right. It was a different time. Not everybody uh, wrote their material. There were a couple guys who were pretty prolific with original material, and there were comedy writers that were very highly paid around there. I don't really get into my book about some of the higher paid uh, comedy writers, but there were some big names. This guy, Edgar Allan Wolf, who apparently ran an opium den on the MGM lot. He later became a, a script doctor and, and punched up movies like Todd Browning's Freaks and The Wizard of Oz. But in the 20s, he uh, wrote personal appearance material for movie stars who were appearing in uh, in vaudeville houses promoting their movies. Wow. And, you know, he would write original material. But uh, it was very seldom that the performer themselves would write the original material. I do get into my book about a guy named Al Boesberg, mm-hmm. who was a, a very prolific comedy writer of, uh, of plays, comedy reviews, sketches, jokes. And he was very adept. He really uh, helped create some of the biggest comedy stars of that era. Uh, He turned Bob Hope into a wise guy. He wrote his first sort of smarmy, wise guy act for him. He turned Jack Benny into the penurious chief character. He wrote that originally for Jack Benny. He turned Milton Berle into the notorious joke thief, the thief of bad gags, as they called him. That was all Al Boesberg's idea that... Milton Berle would pose as a joke thief, and now, subsequently, all these years later, people say that Berle was a joke thief, but it was really actually a fabricated persona, this guy Al Boesberg had constructed. And he was also the same guy who uh, convinced George Burns that he should not be the funny one, that he should play straight for his wife, Gracie Allen. So all these huge, huge stars in the late 20s and early 30s were kind of uh, uh, orchestrated by this uh, now obscure comedy writer, named Al Boesberg. So most of the original material, if it wasn't out of a joke book, uh, was written by a writer who specifically uh, uh, had that as their only vocation, not as a performer, but as a writer, and then they would sell it to uh, to people like uh, the comedians I just mentioned. Right. Um, in later years, there were a few guys who did prolifically write their own material, 
But because everybody assumed back then that most material was in the public domain or interchangeable, uh, it, there was nothing in it for you to write your own material because people would steal it, just assuming that it was like public domain. Um, and also, the style of stand-up then was generic. I mentioned in my book this as an example, that you know everybody did mother-in-law jokes, even if they weren't ever married. They would make a reference to their mother-in-law, and they didn't even have a mother-in-law. So when that was the style of comedy that was common, it was very easy to steal because it wasn't about anybody's personal life, you know. Yeah. Um, so you know, a, a black comedian today will talk about the black experience. A white comedian can't steal that material and talk about what it's like to be black unless they're being absolutely absurd. Um, back in those days, all the material was generic, and so it was very easy to pilfer it. The two comedians who were most prolific in that era were uh, famous later on for their television appearances, and that was Maury Amsterdam, who people know best uh, from the Dick Van Dyke show, right. and Nipsey Russell, who people know best from uh, game show panels in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, but back in the 30s and 40s, mostly the 40s for Nipsey Russell, uh, 30s and 40s for Maury Amsterdam, these guys prolifically wrote their own material. They wrote hundreds and hundreds of jokes, and they both wrote hundreds of jokes for other people as well. But they also saw hundreds and hundreds of their jokes because they were still written off, from yeah. a generic point of view. So. Yeah, I mean, it was a, just a different era with a different style. Like all art forms, it evolves and the styles uh, shift and change. You know? But two major things happen at the end of that era that caused the shift. One is World War II, right, which changes yep. changes the, the culture. And you actually get into how that changes comedy, which I want to talk about. And the other, right on the heels of World War II, is television which just became a meat grinder of comedy. Can you tell me a little bit about how World War II changed, uh, changed the business of comedy? Well, World War II changed uh, all art forms, really. I mean, yeah. uh, America was quite different in 1946. There was a, a new cynicism in society. There was also, to a degree, believe it or not, a new tolerance in society. Um, we still think of that period as a very intolerant era, era but you, know, you very seldom saw blackface in show business after World War II. Right. You saw it everywhere before World War II, but uh, people became more sensitive to this idea of racial superiority after Hitler and uh, the hypocrisy of American culture. Of course, it didn't uh, fade away. America was still an extremely uh, segregated and racist society in 1946. But some people were, were quick to point out how many uh, black soldiers fought and died during World War II, and right. yet when they returned to the home front, it was no better than before, and it was not uh, uh, that dissimilar from the germination of Nazism. Of course, there wasn't the extermination to that degree, but there certainly was that uh, 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 second-class citizenship idea that our race is superior to yours. So show business was uh, sensitive to that. And blackface, uh, very seldom did you see it in movies or TV after 46. Occasionally, it would pop up, and it was mostly like when it was like a tribute to vaudeville. They would stage minstrel shows occasionally on like a special episode of, uh, of Ed Sullivan in 1948 or something. But right. for the most part, that eroded, and you didn't see that as much. 
And, you know, in cinema, uh, people equate uh, film noir as the genre that came after World War II when soldiers returned and, and, and people were more cynical. It was more brutal. It was a little bit more uh, gritty, the, the art forms that we saw. The same thing happened in literature, and that uh, slowly gave way to what became the beat generation and a new era of college students who considered themselves more cerebral and more left-wing uh, you saw the first sort of pangs of social unrest, which eventually fed into the 60s, where people were protesting uh, McCarthyism and, and, and nuclear testing and things like that. Right. So all these things were coming to play in post-war America. And like I say, that affected film, that affected literature, it of course affected music. Jazz was becoming big at that time, bop music. And alongside it were the comedians. Uh, the same thing happened with stand-up. It started to change slowly but surely. And television was uh, not so much a catalyst in terms of social change. It was more a catalyst in terms of uh, where we saw change, really. and who became uh, big stars. Right. It was more in, into the 50s after television where stand-up comedy itself became more cynical and changed with people like Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul, and then later on, Dick Gregory. Um, I talk about in the book this sort of lost generation of comedians from 1946 to 1950. They're all comedians that we are familiar with, but that most people do not necessarily equate as part of the same school. There's a group of comedians in the 1950s that get categorized together, and rightly so. And that, that includes uh, Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, Jonathan Winters, Nichols and May, Dick Gregory, Shelley Berman, Bob Newhart, and then later Woody Allen and Bill Cosby. Right. Now, they were considered the coffeehouse comedians, and everybody who's really into this stuff kind of knows that. But 1946 to 1950, there's another collection of comedians that predated them, not really cerebral or uh, uh, progressive, but also not vaudevillians. Uh, uh, nor film comedians. They were this contingent of New York comedians who performed along the Broadway corridor in what were called presentation houses, these giant, very famous theaters that sat anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 people. They were all owned by the film studios, and they would show the most recent uh, major motion pictures made by those respective studios. So right. there was a theater called the Paramount. They showed Paramount movies. There was a place called the Capitol and those state theaters. They showed MGM movies. There was the Roxy, the Music Hall, the Palace, the Strand, um, you know, and they all had a contract with, with, with each of the film studios. But before the films went on, they would have a 45-minute stage show, which would feature a singer, a dance team, an orchestra, and a comedian. And there's some very important comedians all came out of that. Uh, world between 46 and 50, and they're big names that most people would recognize. People like Jack Carter, Larry Storch, Henny Youngman, Alan King, Jerry Lester, Milton Berle. These guys all turned in, oh, Phil Foster is another, these guys all right. turned into the big comedians of that era. So when television came in, uh, 49, 50, 48, 49, 50, all the stars of the comedy shows were these guys. Milton Berle had his own show. Jack Carter had his own show. Jerry Lester was the first host of the NBC uh, late night program, Broadway Open House, the precursor to the Tonight, to the Tonight show. show. Right. Yeah. So all these guys came out of that post-war world. Most of them had been in the military during World War II, either enlisted or drafted, 
and got their first taste of performing while in the Army or whatever the division was of the armed services that they were in. And then when they got out, they continued to perform, and it was at these presentation houses that they flourished. Now, their style of comedy, I cannot say, was really more cynical or anything than the comedian uh, comedians that came before. However, they were kind of a little bit more uh, brash, a little bit more uh, uh, desperate, if that's the right word. They kind of fought with their audiences. They had to fight for their laughs because they were performing in theaters that sat anywhere from one to 5,000 people. And uh, when you don't have a lot of experience, that's not easy. Right. But and they used to rerun these movies four to six times a day, which meant that all those comedians I just mentioned were performing stand-up four to six times a day, every day, seven days a week. So whatever the math is, uh, they gained a lot of experience really quickly. Sure. Um, but that's kind of a lost era of, uh, of comedy that people don't uh, acknowledge. And the transition is that these guys are, are less interchangeable than your, your vaudeville or your burlesque, which I would have loved to have read more about the burlesque uh, comedians, you know, where they're kind of interchangeable and they're all doing the same material. The guys that you mentioned, right. you know, Phil Foster can't do Henny Youngman's material, can't do, um, can't do Jack Carter's material. That's right, and I should mention Maury Amsterdam as well, who I mentioned before. He, too, was playing those uh, presentation houses, although he ended up opening his own nightclub, his own homeroom called the Playgoers, and that's where he uh, uh, started performing uh, regularly the most. But uh, Maury Amsterdam also was part of that uh, presentation house circuit, and in fact, he and Jack Carter met along the presentation house circuit in uh, Vancouver, in Canada, at a place called the Beacon Theater, which was a uh, presentation house up there. And Maury Amsterdam took uh, Jack Carter on under his wing, and Jack Carter then enlisted in the Army. And when he got out, it was Maury Amsterdam who got Jack Carter all his first uh, several gigs. They would tour together uh, up and down the West Coast uh, along the presentation house circuit uh, through California and Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia. Wow. Wow. Um, and so at this time... There's that there's that social change, and everybody kind of kind of puts um, deservedly so puts Lenny Bruce on a pedestal as the as the poster child for for this movement. He's kind of the face that that I think most most young. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST people would recognize for this movement um and he's really most famous for getting busted for obscenity than he is for his material and his recorded material doesn't really show what he was really all about but at the same time you mention that um 
while uh, while Lenny was kind of a martyr for being able to say what you want on stage, there were other people getting busted for obscenity around the same time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, there were other people being busted for obscenity at the same time. They were not in any way uh, socially uh, relevant or people that it purported to be uh, socially relevant. They were, they were just kind dirty. Of dirty for dirty sake, yeah, right. or by those standards of the 1940s. Um, the most famous was a guy named B.S. Pulley, and his initials did stand for what you would think they would stand for. Sure. And uh, that was part of his shtick. He did a uh, comedy act with a guy named H.S. Gump. It was bullshit and horseshit. And they uh, performed primarily in Miami Beach, right. uh, but also uh, in roadhouses on the way to the Catskills in upstate New York between Manhattan and, uh, and the Catskills. They would perform at these sort of barroom, rough-and-tumble roadhouses. But Miami Beach, back in those days, it was kind of America's playground where uh, in the squeaky clean era, you could still go get uh, prostitutes and drugs and things like that. It was sort of Las Vegas prior to Las Vegas, Miami Beach. And with that came sort of a salacious uh, 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 venues for performers. You could go see burlesque shows, bump and grind shows, and after midnight, dirty comedians. And now dirty is a very subjective phrase. Right. And I don't quote a lot of their acts in my book simply because there's no record of their acts. There's record of their bust, but the newspapers would never publish what they said on stage. Even a lot of the court records and court documents censor the specific words in question and just say that it was in poor taste or questionable morals. So that could mean anything. And this but is according a, to some this of the old that I talked to, that they certainly did use uh, the F word on stage uh, as early as 1942, 43. A lot of burlesque comedians also got cut up in uh, obscenity raids that were not necessarily directed at the comic material, just the sort of show in general that had a lot of TNA and suggestive uh, illusions. Yeah. But uh, that being said, there was a lot of comedians prior to Lenny Bruce that did get arrested, that did get fined uh, for obscenity, um, by my count, at least uh, 12 on record prior to Lenny Bruce's uh, first bust. So uh, he does deserve, to a degree, the martyrdom because he didn't just swear on stage and didn't just get arrested for swearing or for drug use. He really altered the style of stand-up. And if you play a Lenny Bruce record for somebody today, not only will they not think it's funny, they also won't really see what the groundbreaking deal is. Right. Now, even Lenny Bruce fans, I think, make the mistake of telling uh, younger people what the big deal was. Listen to the records. Listen to how he's uh, uh, attacking the church or socially relevant or blah, blah, blah. That's really not it. When you listen to the records, if you know the style of stand-up that existed at that time and prior to it, then, this, then you'll see what's revelatory. Here's a guy who goes on stage with an idea. He used to get criticized in the 50s by uh, reviewers for rambling. Back in those days, you knew your setup and you knew your punchline, and it was boom, 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 boom. Right. Now, today, stand-up comedy is not necessarily like that. It can be, but most comedians go up there and they kind of shoot the shit at first, and they talk about themselves, and what they, it's, very, it's much less precise. Now, you could argue that that's not a good thing, but it's much less precise than it used to be. It's not by rote like it used to be. Mm -hmm. And Lenny Bruce is the guy who did that first. He was the first guy to go up there 
and kind of speak in a very conversational tone that was him. You know, he kind of spoke the same way on stage and off. Obviously, he had material, and obviously, he had punchlines, and obviously, he did important things like criticize the church, talk about religion, break taboos, uh, play with language. But really, it's his style that was revelatory. And it's the same thing with his two important contemporaries, Jonathan Winters and Mort Saul. They also did that. Mort Saul didn't really talk about himself on stage. He talked about his opinions. But again, it was structured in a new and different way that wasn't quite as precise. And because it wasn't as precise, it came across as vastly more human than these guys like Jack Carter and Maury Amsterdam, who kind of sounded like robots. And the same with Jonathan Winters. Now, Jonathan Winters didn't talk about politics. He didn't really talk about religion. But things came flying out of his mouth like a mile a minute. Uh, 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 he was one of the first great improvisers in popular culture. Right. So all three, when taken together, created a revolution in stand-up comedy. But Lenny Bruce uh, was very, very, very important. And yet I feel like even those who argue that he was very, very important kind of get the reasons why uh, incorrect. No, I get it. I I, I read Lenny's books. <laughs> you know, I've been a I've been a student since uh since my teens of Lenny. So you know, I I get it, and I get the I get the social change. I the thing that kind of that got me about Lenny was really parallel to what was going on at the same time musically, because um you know Lenny and Elvis kind of came up about the same time, and they were both doing um for lack of a better term, material that you would find in the Chitlin circuit. You know, you go, if you listen to a, a Red Fox album, those are more set up punchline, but they're, um, they're dirty, but they, they really, they talk about life a little bit more than, you know, your Jack Carters. Sure. Absolutely. You following I mean, that? Yeah. I mean, if you listen to Jack Carter's act, if Jack Carter did an hour of material for you in the forties, fifties or sixties, you would know no more about Jack Carter when the show was over than when it started. And that's, you know, kind of, I think, a good point in explaining the difference between the, if you allow the phrase, the pre-Jack Carter comedians and the post-Jack Carter comedians. <laughs> um, they, Jack Carter is a guy of the old school. Oddly enough, he and Mort Saul were basically the same age, but... Completely different genres. Right. Jack Carter belonged to that generic style. Red Fox was interesting because he was a combination of the two. He was both the old style and the new style. And oddly enough, so was Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory, he felt, in order to appeal to white audiences, he needed some of that generic comedy material. And he worked with a guy who wrote joke books to provide a lot of uh, material that sounded more like Jack Carter or Henny Youngman. You know, Dick Gregory would do these innocuous jokes about his wife's cooking. He'd go, my, my wife's a, a terrible cook. How do you burn cereal? You know, that kind of a line. Right. But, but that's not the kind of joke or, or, or comedy we associate with Dick Gregory. We associate, you know, civil rights commentary and jokes about Bull Connor that are very uh, incendiary. But Dick Gregory was smart. He knew that before he could get to the incendiary material in that day and age, he needed to hit them first with sort of these hokey Jack Carter-esque jokes. 
to sort of disarm uh, the audience so that they weren't too uh, resistant to hard-hitting comedy afterwards. Um, I'm not sure if that was Red Fox's strategy as well, but certainly when you listen to his old records, mostly just old-school jokes about a, did you hear the one about the guy who was walking down the street, blah, 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 blah. Right. Uh, Red, but Red Fox is, is interesting. He straddled both worlds, and his greatest successes came well after the Mort Saul uh, uh, generation, not before, even though he started in the 1940s. So Red Fox is a very interesting uh, case, and he uh, factors in uh, significantly throughout the narrative of my book. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, and then we go through the we go through the '60s, and um, the most prominent force in comedy at the time runs this weird dichotomy, because at the time you've got this throwback to vaudeville, which was essentially laugh-in, right? Where it's 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 very baggy pants, but at the same time, very very individual material. And then you've got Carlin and Pryor changing the world. You know, yeah. and that's a, that's a really interesting time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, I mean, comedy always changes decade to decade. No, no two decades or no, no two consecutive decades of comedy are ever uh, identical. It, right. it always evolves. So Richard Pryor and George Carlin were the tail end of the coffee house circuit of the new progressive comedians that were talking from their own point of view. And I've already mentioned these names, but I'll name them again because it's important to know this, uh, this school of comics who really transformed stand-up in the 1950s. Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, Jonathan Winters, Mike Nichols and Elaine May, Shelley Berman, Bob Newhart, Woody Allen, Dick Gregory, uh, uh, and the tail end included people like Bill Cosby, Burns and Carlin, and uh, Richard Pryor. Burns and Carlin was George Carlin's comedy team. Right. Uh, it was actually interesting. It wasn't traditional straight man comedian. They were actually both funny, and they both had funny lines. So it was two two uh, comedians rather than a straight man and a comedian. Jack Burns is kind of forgotten. He's still alive. It's too and bad because Jack Burns clear. is a genius. He's really a smart yeah, he, guy. He, he did so many different things. I mean, he started with George Carlin in the comedy team. Right. Then he, uh, when they broke up, he joined the Second City. He replaced Don Knotts on the Andy Griffith show and became the new deputy sheriff of uh, Mayberry. That right. Only only lasted about ten episodes because you can't really replace Don Knotts. It's impossible. Uh, then he uh, he teamed up with uh, Avery, Avery Schreiber, Schreiber, and they had right. a very successful comedy team in the seventies, Burns and Schreiber. Then he directed The Muppet Show for a couple of years until he and Jim Henson had a big falling out. And then he directed the Saturday Night Live ripoff competitor Fridays, Fridays which featured yep. Larry David in a famous sequence with uh, Andy Kaufman and Michael Richard where he throws up the cue cards, which they recreated in the movie Man on the Moon. The guy who lunges from behind the camera at Andy Kaufman is Jack Burns. Uh, so Jack Burns was kind of an everyman in comedy and show business. He had his fingerprints on a lot of things. He wrote for a lot of interesting shows as well. Right. But he's kind of forgotten, and he wants it that way. He doesn't really like talking about his uh, history or his career. He very rarely uh, consents to uh, interviews. Did you get and a chance then, to talk to him, Cliff? Uh, no, I never spoke. Well, I spoke with him, but I never uh, interviewed him. Uh, he only uh, will talk about George Carlin, which is great, but he won't. Uh, he doesn't want to talk about any of his career. Uh, he'd rather be forgotten. 
I think he suffers from a, a chronic uh, depression, actually. But anyways, he and George Carlin were kind of the tail end of that coffee house uh, uh, scene. George Carlin was extremely influenced by Lenny Bruce. He considered Lenny his hero. Lenny Bruce also once said that George Carlin will, ever, will eventually be my successor, uh, which turned out to be essentially true. And the famous uh, evening in which Lenny Bruce was removed from the stage in Chicago at the Gate of Horn in the middle of his show and thrown in the back of a paddy wagon, uh, George Carlin was there. He'd been working the Playboy Club across the street, and he came to watch Lenny's show. Right. And he defied the police when they were checking everybody's ID at the end of the night. He refused to produce his ID, even though it was on him, because he didn't believe that it was right that Lenny Bruce was being arrested. So in solidarity, he got arrested, too, and thrown in the back of the paddy wagon with Lenny Bruce. So I think this was 1962. So that's kind of incredible to think that George Fallon was there for such a historic moment. Uh, just as a side note, one of the other guys that was there that night was Marshall Brickman, who uh, co-wrote most of Woody Allen's uh, stand-up act. Wow. Also co-wrote also co-wrote the screenplay to Sleeper, Manhattan, and Annie Hall. Huh. Uh, he was also there that night. Anyways, uh, so yes, George Carlin uh, uh, was part of that coffee house scene. And then Richard Pryor, who started stand-up around 63, 64, was really the last of those guys. Uh, the coffee houses and the folk uh, music thing was starting to erode. By 65, it was dying. By 66, it was dead. And so Richard Pryor caught the tail end of it, playing Greenwich Village uh, nightclubs among these guys. And some people compared him to Bill Cosby, including Bill Cosby, who despised Richard Pryor, felt that he was stealing his material, stealing his voice, stealing his mannerisms, and stealing his act. And uh, that was a gross exaggeration on Bill Cosby's part. He was just mostly jealous of the fact that there was another skinny, young, uh, charming black comedian on, on the circuit. Um, and he kind of wanted to do away with Pryor. Right. But anyways, Carlin and Pryor were the tail end of that coffee house scene. Now, around 1966, as we all know, America was going through uh, some incredibly swift changes culturally, politically, artistically. So much so that by 1969, all the comedians from 1963 and 64 were considered irrelevant. They were considered squares. They weren't quite washed up, but they all had to kind of reinvent themselves if they wished to endure. Uh, Bob Newhart could no longer do the same act and draw the same crowd, so he got into television. Same with Cosby. He got into television as well, and they had long careers because of it. Right. Guys who did not get a TV sitcom, uh, like Shelley Berman, saw their career uh, evaporate rapidly. Uh, Dick Gregory, he stopped doing stand-up altogether, became a full-time activist. Activist. Yeah. Everybody was changing, and there's no greater example than Richard Pryor and George Carlin. Um, their transformation, like so many people in music and comedy and all the culture at that time, had their epiphany because of psychedelic drugs. So there was guys in music like Willie Nelson, who went from being the greatest behind-the-scenes, clean-cut, country-and-western songwriter writing uh, songs for Fair and Young, like Hello Walls and Crazy for Patsy Cline. By the end of the 60s, he's this pot-smoking, long-haired hippie. You know, this incredible <laughs> uh, transformation. Right. Same thing happened with the Smothers Brothers. Tommy Smothers and Dick Smothers were considered these clean-cut guys who had a 
hokey, stupid sitcom that was very much in the Mr. Ed, Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, My Favorite Martian style. Uh, they were considered just a safe bet for America. But when Tommy Smothers started doing drugs, well, suddenly he became this ne'er-do-well who was objecting to the Vietnam War and, and causing a lot of trouble at CBS with the censors. So this was not an uncommon progression in the arts. But George Carlin and Richard Pryor are the best examples of it in stand-up comedy. Uh, George Carlin started doing acid around 1967. His first acid trip was on stage at Mr. Kelly's in Chicago. And Variety <laughs> reviewed the show, and without knowing what was going on, they said that Carlin put on an excellent show, although he seemed a trifle under the weather. <laughs> and if you ever heard... <laughs> yeah. If you ever heard uh, Carlin tell the story, he said that uh, and he kept great records of his uh, uh, of all of his gigs in notebooks. He wrote down the date. He gave them a star rating, how good the audience was. You know, for his uh, engagement at Mr. Kelly's that week, uh, in his notebook log, just in giant letters written across the page, it just says "acid." And he did four shows on uh, on LST at Mr. <laughs> Kelly's, this old school uh, um, supper club. But slowly but surely, his act started to change because of that. He started speaking out more. He wasn't uh, playing it safe on the Ed Sullivan show anymore. Now he was talking about the bombing of Laos and uh, Cambodia, which was very daring for that era, right. especially for a guy who was already established as a, uh, a reliable mainstream act. Carlin could have stayed on that circuit as long as he wanted to and played Vegas for the rest of his life. But that wasn't who he felt who he was, especially not after becoming a uh, adherent of psychedelic drugs. He was already a pot smoker, and he was already a pretty kind of savvy, smart guy. But uh, LSD changed him. And now I think a lot of people know that about Carlin. They may not know it as much about Richard Pryor, because Pryor's cocaine use has eclipsed all the other drug stories. But in the late 60s, he was hanging out in Berkeley, and he too was doing LSD. You know, there was sort of this contingent. It wasn't big in the, in the black culture necessarily, but there were certain guys who branched off, of course, like uh, Jimi Hendrix or Arthur Lee from Love and right. the Chambers Brothers. These black acts who were very much immersed in uh, psychedelics and hippie culture. And Richard Pryor was kind of part of that. 67, 68, 69, he was hanging out in Berkeley at the height of all this uh, protest and social unrest and dropping acid. And it was around that time he had this epiphany that the stuff he had been doing on TV on the Merv Griffin show, which was good in its own right and great, you know, uh, very charming, very funny, very clever material, same with Carlin, uh, he still felt like he was pandering to a white audience. He was giving a white audience what he felt they needed in order for he to succeed in what ultimately was white show business, right. white-controlled show business. Uh, after LSD, he had an epiphany, just like Parlin, that he was being dishonest, that he had a story to tell within him, and that he should be more honest on stage. And that's exactly what happened. 1970, 71, 72, he was going up at Bud Friedman's Improv all the time, and then when the Comedy Store opened in 72 in Los Angeles, was going up on stage here all the time and experimenting and talking about being molested when he was a child, talked about... Uh, being a child, observing people having intercourse in, in the whorehouse that his mother operated. You know, this was all very shocking 
And there's some early footage of that transformation of, of Pryor's act before he becomes a breakout star. Yeah, it's hard and to watch. You, it's hard to watch, and you sense the uh, the tension in the audience. But there, there, there's one uh, famous film footage from the improv. It's about an hour long, and it's him kind of just uh, up there with notes for an hour at one in the morning, and people are walking out because he's talking about servicing an adult pervert when he's a child. It's very painful and, and tough to watch. It's not always funny. Sometimes it's just the, the, the tragic story. Right. But little by little, by doing that, he found the funny parts and emerged as the great, honest, raw uh, uh, Richard Pryor. But it was the late 60s that uh, transformed them uh, from these sort of crowd-pleasing guys to the opposite. They were doing the opposite of pleasing the crowd. But by doing the opposite, they broke through and found a way to please a different kind of audience. And ultimately, society followed them. By the 70s, they were accepted. And you could talk about the things they were talking about on stage uh, uh, without uh, alienating everybody. So they were ahead of the curve uh, culturally uh, through, their, through their art. But yeah, like you said, a huge transformation again happened. Uh, with stand-up with Carlin and Pryor in the late 60s. And there was all kinds of people that followed in their footsteps. Uh, the next ones probably, and they don't get any credit for this, who were really like that to change things were Cheech and Chong. Uh, they were yeah. the first big stadium comedians. And, of course, it was so drug-centric uh, that had never been done in comedy before. And now if you go up on stage and do marijuana material, it's the hackiest <laughs> thing in the world. Yeah. But think about it, in 1970, uh, that was brand new. And Cheech and Chong had the balls to do it openly and brazenly on records, in concerts, uh, and out in the streets. So uh, they deserve a lot of credit, too, that they actually don't get. And they're opening the doors for the for National Lampoon and for what Lauren Michaels was about to unleash on NBC and, and things like that. So it really, um, so much changed then. And there's so many great stories between that point and where we are today, you know, where comedy is, is really, I think trying to find a new, new footing today, you know, you've got, uh, the most visible comedians, Louis CK, um, and and everybody with with the culture changing the way that it is comedy is still is transitioning from you know set up punch to it's it's actually more story and the, what we used to call alt comedy 5 or 6 years ago is becoming quickly more mainstream would you agree with that well comedy is always evolving of course and uh, i don't think there was i don't think there was ever in my opinion really anything called alt comedy because uh, that's when I was doing stand-up. It was 98 to 2006. Right. And to me, to me uh, I was living in a small market. I was living in, uh, well, first I was living in Toronto, then I was in Vancouver, and Vancouver was a small market. So there was no room for alternative comedy because there was only so many comedians and there was only so many rooms to perform. So you played every room, whether it was a comedy club or a punk rock bar, wherever you could get stage time, you went. So it was all the same comedians. And, yeah, you could classify some as, like, the corporate comic, and you could consider some the more subversive comic. But there was really no uh, class line separating the comedians. So I didn't subscribe to this uh, idea of uh, alt-comedy. Right. However, I did, did subscribe to the idea of uh, alternative venues. And, really, I argue in my book that the idea of alt-comedy, alternative comedy, it's, a, it's like the cousin of that bullshit 
uh, genre of music in the 90, 1990s, alternative music. And that's where you found your, your Nirvana tapes and, and whatever. But right. it's really just... It was just, just rock whatever. and roll. Yeah, it was just regular rock music, but it, there was this kind of terminology affixed it. Um, but at the same time, there was a distinctive sort of difference, and I always believed it had less to do with the comedy than where the comedy was presented. So these were comedians that didn't perform in comedy clubs. And part of it was because after the 1980s, all the comedy clubs started shutting down. There was less and less places to perform. So people started doing shows in other venues, whether it was a bookstore or a coffee house. It was sort of a throwback to what was happening in the 50s with the Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, Jonathan Winters era. Now in the 90s, you had guys like Louis C.K., Bob Odenkirk, Andy Kindler, Janine Garofalo, Sarah Silverman, Judd Apatow, Dana Gould. Uh, they were all part of this same contingent. Ben Stiller was part of that, which right. is not necessarily ironic, but maybe coincidental in the light of the fact that his parents uh, uh, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira were considered coffeehouse type comedians mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s. Um, so like you say, yeah, now it's all considered mainstream. Ben Stiller's mainstream, Janine Garofalo's mainstream, Louis C.K.'s mainstream, Bob Odenkirk is mainstream. But I think really they always were or could have been. It was just the venues they were uh, performing in were alternative. But yeah, of course, anything that's even remotely subversive does eventually get assimilated by the mainstream there's no greater example than punk music now uh you know during rush hour every car that drives past me i hear some sort of one-time subversive song playing you know blaring out of the car by by, by a soccer mom right when you hear uh, the so, hear the ramones at ralph's you know yeah exactly that's exactly, weird exactly yeah and i'm sure it was weird the first time the beatles were being played in a grocery store you know that's probably um, true but yeah, so I don't know that we're experiencing like any new radical shift. I think that comedy is always evolving every every day of every week of every year, um, and that's the nature of all art forms. Um, I don't know that it's a crossroads per se. Um, as I argue in my book, media and is always uh, altering the art of comedy, whether it's the collapse of vaudeville and the emergence of radio or the collapse of radio and the emergence of TV or the collapse of TV and the emergence of the Internet, it always kind of redirects the way comedy is uh, created and the way it is consumed, who succeeds and who fails. And uh, we as artists, we always have to uh, be conscious of those kinds of changing tides because it's, you know, it's important to you know, be able to sustain yourself uh, and remain relevant by being able to adjust to whatever the new methods right. are. And if you refuse to, if you refuse to adjust, then you're going to turn into what Bob Hope turned into in the '70s and '80s, which is kind of a laughing stock. Despite it's his job to be the one making fun of things, in turn, it's actually everybody who's making fun of him. You know, and that that's a real dangerous thing. That's kind of what does happen if you're not willing to adjust yourself as a society evolves, as the media landscape evolves, as the art form evolves, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, you're definitely right that all those people that you mentioned are now kind of the mainstream, but that is inevitable. You know, that is just the way, uh, stand up always goes. That's the way art and, those, and culture go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And those that don't adjust themselves, unfortunately, uh, end up kind of 
being self-destructive without realizing it. Mort Saul is alive and well. He has not been relevant since 1965. Since right after the Kennedy assassination. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, but if you were to interview Mort Saul on your show, I guarantee you uh, he would drop a reference to Adlai Stevenson. You can't expect to remain relevant and and just uh, keep hitting the Adlai Stevenson uh, references. You know what I mean? Yep. And uh, there's certain guys, Jerry Lewis, same thing, could not be more irrelevant in his old age. But he has... uh, uh, frequently been brilliant throughout his career, but it was all in the early part of his career. He never was willing to create anything new. He was never willing to adjust himself for the new society. And the guys who did adjust themselves broke through. Rodney Dangerfield adjusted himself for the modern age, became a huge sensation. George Burns. George Burns completely changed his act in the last half of his life. It became all about being an old guy who drinks martinis and smokes cigars and hangs out with hot women. And he was a huge, huge stadium draw throughout the 1980s and a huge movie star. So these guys were smart. They knew that you had to reinvent yourself, adjust yourself to remain relevant. And unfortunately, the guys who, who refused to do that, the Jerry Lewis's, the Mort Saul's, the Bob Hope's, for all their accomplishments in the past, they end up kind of being... Game show guests. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. So as as things are changing now, Cliff, do you see a trajectory for the for the near future? Well, a couple of people have been asking me uh, that, and there's only two things that can guarantee us for sure without uh, forecasting. It's impossible to forecast changes in style and what will become popular. But sure. I will tell you this: there's there's a comedy boom right now. There's a podcast boom right now, and there's a lot of gravy around for those that are in comedy. You don't say. But all, <laughs> yeah. but all, uh, all bubbles uh, burst. Right. So that's inevitable. I'm not saying it's going to happen this year or next year. It may not even happen in 10 years, but eventually the comedy bubble will burst. So there's that. We'll have another thing happen like happened in the early 90s. Although even then, when the comedy boom of the 80s uh, uh, busted, there was a sort of offshoot boom that happened that people don't talk about, but I mentioned it in my book, which mm-hmm. was the black comedy boom, uh, Def Jam, In Living Color, all those black Fox sitcoms starring comedians. In the early 90s, there was a huge boom in African-American comedy, uh, which was kind of uh, could be credited to the popularity of Eddie Murphy in the 80s. He inspired untold uh, young black comics to get into the game, and a lot of them became stars later on. That's true. Um, so the bubble will burst. That is my one uh, guarantee. And the other is that whoever you consider to be the funniest, hippest, most cutting-edge comedian right now, 40 years from now, all the young people are going to say, that guy is not funny. He is the squarest man alive, and that is my dad's comedy. That will happen. And that is one of the great tragedies of comedy, that we only really speak to our generation more or less. And the older a comedian gets, the less he's able to relate to the younger generation. And his comedy, for the most part, is going to resonate only to those people that are also a senior citizen. 
so that is my other uh, forecast for you. <laughs> it's very, very safe, Cliff, very safe. Uh, the book is called The Comedians, and it is available right now as you're listening to this. Uh, Cliff Nesterhoff has been my guest, and this book is available wherever fine books are sold. If there's a brick-and-mortar bookstore in your neighborhood, go in and ask the manager to get it for you right now. Otherwise, it's available online, of course. It is a fantastic read. And uh, I have enjoyed every page of it, and um, I encourage you to pick that up. Cliff, I really I appreciate your time, man. I could talk to you all day because there are so many things in the book that we didn't touch on that as a comedy enthusiast I'd love to talk to you more about. Uh, I hope you'll consider coming back. Yeah, well, you could talk to me all day because I never shut the fuck up. But, uh, <laughs> thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> it's my, you said it, not me, but you, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff we, we didn't talk about that I would love to, so uh, I, I really appreciate your time. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.